Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead. Thank you for joining us for our Food, Beverage, and Agribusiness podcast series, Don't Miss a Beat. My name is Kermit Nash, and I'm the co-chair of Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair's Food, Beverage, and Agribusiness practice. I am based in Minneapolis office. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Jonathan Havens, co-chair of both the firm's Food, Beverage, and Agribusiness, and also our cannabis practice, and he's based in our Baltimore office. Jonathan will discuss the latest updates on FDA regulations and other state and federal regulations impacting the food, beverage, and agribusiness space. Jonathan, I want to start from the top. Appreciate you making some time today. There's going to be some folks listening in who probably don't understand the role of the USDA and the FDA. Uh, What do they do? How do they work together? Do they work together and what they do exactly? Could you kind of take us from the top and explain what the USDA and the FDA do? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me, Kermit. Great to be with you as always. So the FDA, Washington is this alphabet soup of agencies. Uh, You know, it's like, can I buy a vowel, please? A lot of people don't know what these agencies stand for. They hear the acronyms every day. So FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, actually regulates quite a bit and beyond the food space. It's commonly said that FDA regulates about 25 cents of every dollar spent in the United States. And it's to see why when I run down a list of the products that FDA regulates. So foods and, and beverages, of course, and food include, foods include dietary supplements as well. FDA regulates drugs and medical devices and biologics, tobacco products, and, and others. So FDA has a pretty broad purview. USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, also has a pretty wide purview. But the name, what, what, what USDA regulates is a little bit easier to tell from its name. So U.S. Department of Agriculture. USDA, what confuses some people is, okay, we know that both USDA and FDA regulate in the food space. So what does FDA regulate versus what does USDA regulate? So I hate to uh, immediately say, oh, go check this great resource and find the answer for yourself. But I will tell you, there's an article in Eater E-A-T-E-R, about the differences between FDA and USDA, and it is very much from a layman's perspective. And it has some pretty entertaining examples, which I'll crib from a bit. But when you think about meat and poultry, you should think about USDA. When you think about livestock, you should think about USDA crops, agricultural concerns relating to farmers and agribusiness. Think USDA. FDA regulates quite a bit in the packaged food or ready-to-eat food perspective, but you know there is some overlap. And what I mean by that is, for example, you think about egg products. So when you think about egg products, both FDA and USDA have jurisdiction over, over products, you know, depending on whether it's a shell egg product or a liquid egg product. You know, when you're talking about meat and poultry, It depends, is it predominantly a meat or poultry product or is it predominantly a non-meat or poultry product? There's this very famous example. When I say famous, I mean only within the nerdy 
food uh, and drug lawyer crowd about the chicken sandwich. And if it's an open-faced chicken sandwich, it's regulated by USDA because it's predominantly chicken. But if it's closed face, it has two slices of bread and has less than 50% meat or poultry in that case. So that is regulated by FDA. I commonly roll my eyes at these examples, but I like to think, you know, it's, it's examples like that that keep people like me employed. So I can't really be uh, that upset about them. But, you know, I think a good rule of thumb is if you're talking about packaged food, you're talking about FDA. If you're talking about meat and poultry and slaughterhouses, meat and poultry processing, then you're talking about USDA. Although, you know, when you're talking about animal feed, that's regulated by FDA. So there's all these examples. I guess what I would encourage people to do is if you have specific questions about your industry and whether your products are regulated by the FDA or the USDA or both agencies, feel free to, to let us know. You know, leave a comment, send us an email. It's impossible to cover in a 20-minute podcast series what the differences between FDA and USDA regulations are. But you know, suffice it to say, it has confused many over over the course of the two agencies, and I'm sure will confuse many others going forward. Well, it's a marvel that children everywhere aren't seeking to be FDA lawyers when they grow up uh, based on the demand. Have your kids come talk to me. <laughs> but based on your answer then, more specifically, what's the FDA's role in helping ensure, because it sounds like they're really focused also on safety of human and animal food supply. And, you know, we're, we're still in the somewhere in the midst of a global pandemic with COVID. So what really is the FDA's role in making sure that the products we're getting are safe? And, and how does that work? Because we're still getting products from the U.S., but we're also getting products from outside the U.S. How does that work? Sure. So FDA, one of FDA's critical roles is food inspection. Um, and it's not just domestic food inspection, right? Not just domestic facilities that are producing food, but also foreign suppliers FDA had, uh, there was a piece of legislation passed by Congress a few years ago called the FDA Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA. And the, the, the recognition from Congress is the increasing globalization of the food supply, right? A lot of the foods we eat come from abroad. Not all the foods, of course, but FDA said, look, if we're really serious about food safety, Congress, we need to have foreign supplier verification. So there's something called the FSVP or Foreign Supplier Verification Program. It was one of the foundational rules of FSMA. There are several foundational rules. There's you know, rules on produce safety and foreign supplier verification. There's, I think, seven, uh, if I'm not mistaken, foundational rules. But in any event, in, in response to your question, one of the things that FDA is doing is ensuring the safety of the foods that we eat, both domestic and foreign. And so inspecting food facilities for food that's consumed in the United States is one of FDA's primary roles. Obviously, that's been quite challenging during COVID, but FDA is starting to ramp back up its inspections. FDA is also working with U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the border to see what's coming into the country. When you import a food product into the United States, there's something called prior notice, right? So you need to tell the, the, the government, hey, I, I'm sending something your way, a food product, right? You can't just willy-nilly ship, ship what you want like you can in some other categories. So FDA is, plays a critical role in, in ensuring that the food that we eat is safe. And FDA does this through facility inspections, but uh, you know, on the other hand, because we're talking about the differences between FDA and USDA, USDA is known for continu continuous inspection. So 
for those of you joining us from the meat and poultry world, you, you'll know you have a USDA inspector on site at all hours of operation, right? And so um, the difference on the FDA side is once you register as a food facility, you're putting you know, FDA on notice that we're a food facility, you can come inspect us according to the agency's uh, rotation procedure of you know, how often we inspect food facilities without cause, right? Just because you're registered and we need to see what you're doing. Obviously there are four cause you know, after a recall or after a warning letter is issued or the rest. But yeah, both agencies in their own right do quite a bit in the inspection space. I would say USDA more continuous, FDA uh, more on, a, on a, a rotation schedule. In a prior podcast, we talked about what the USDA has done to try and clear the way for supply chain disruptions and in some cases, real you know, log jams. So what I'm reading is that the FDA is providing flexibility to food manufacturers too, and especially during the uh, the pandemic, it's a health emergency. So these changes that we're reading about and what to be ingredients and, and packaging, can you talk about that? Because the USDA seems to be more, more focused on supply chain, but if it comes to how you make products and, and the inspection you're talking about, it seems like the FDA has got a pretty significant role too. So can you talk about some of the things that have happened? Absolutely. And uh, something that you and I have talked about previously is throwing out the old playbook during times like this, right? There's just, obviously, look, some of the regulatory framework that exists at these federal agencies and at their, you know, brother and sister agencies at the state level and local level, some of what they had prepared can help to get us through the pandemic. But there are some things that, you know, the, the, the tape just needs to be cut through because there are chokeholds in the supply chain and, and these agencies are empowered to do certain things to help alleviate some of those chokeholds. So one of the things that FDA did in the early days of COVID was say to restaurants, look, we know you purchase large industrial size food containers from your suppliers, you know, from restaurant distributors and, um, you know, kind of these central centralized or regional facilities. And a lot of these restaurants just weren't open. Now, of course, we see that, you know, takeaway is open and a lot of states are even allowing in-person dining but we have to remember, it's hard, right? We've, we've been at this since March, but it seems like 100 years ago, March at this point. What FDA said to these facilities is that you can sell those industrial containers to, to grocery stores, to consumers. And some people might say, well, of course they should be able to do that. Well, the labeling for industrial containers is different than uh, consumer containers, right? So, you know, there's this, there's the nutrition facts label that's on the back of a packaged food product, right, for consumers. Whereas industrial food containers, you're really telling someone what it is, right? Here's a big can of stewed tomatoes. I'm not going to tell you, you know, everything about it. I'm not going to tell you the ingredients, you know, to a T. I'll tell you essentially what it is. But it empowered restaurants to say, okay, we have a heck of a lot of supply here that we aren't using to make food for our normal customers. We can sell that food to, um, you know, to the end user, to consumers directly, to grocery stores, without having to relabel those products. Seems like something pretty simple, but that was, a, I think, a meaningful step for restaurants to be able to recognize an income stream that they weren't before. Or, you know, said differently, it allowed them to recoup some of their losses from the products that they purchased they weren't able to use. Another thing that FDA recognized is sourcing certain ingredients during a global pandemic is challenging, to put it mildly. So what FDA allowed is some flexibility in changing the ingredients of your product, you know, slightly without having to do a complete overhaul of your label. I'm 
glazing over this, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But essentially, it's another example of FDA trying to provide flexibility to manufacturers who are having a, a pretty difficult time sourcing some of the ingredients that are in their, their finished products. And again, streamlining or easing those labeling restrictions because frankly, these businesses have other things to deal with and to the extent consumers aren't going to be harmed, right? There's not a safety issue. I think what FDA is saying is, okay, we can, we can step up. We can, we can cut through some of that red tape for those companies. It seems like an amazing pivot considering that we all have friends and family and loved ones who have concerns about allergens and things like that, but uh, it seems like it, it's, it's worked and haven't heard a lot of blowback about it, but that's, that to me seems really insightful that you have a large federal agency and say what you will about bureaucracy and years of abiding by the playbook and building a thicker playbook, Jonathan, but it seems like this has pushed some of our federal agencies, which we would not necessarily de- declare quick and easy, but it seems like there's a, there's a play here that silver lining, call what you will, seems like there's some modernization that's been happening, happening out of necessity. What else are you seeing that agencies are doing or even what's happening in the industry, not just reacting to COVID-19, but bringing some modernization that business leaders that may be listening to this should be made aware of? Sure. So, you know, we talk to clients a lot about what are, what are these agencies set up for? What do they do? Are they here to help me? Are they here to be referees, you know, to call balls and strikes when I you know, submit an applic- a marketing application, for example. And look, I think it's somewhere in between, but I will say one of the silver linings has been the regulators that we've been working with at FDA and USDA. First of all, these folks do not get a- a- enough. 100% the people on our front lines, our healthcare workers, our EMTs, deserve the a- 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 lion's share of the credit right now, right? They're risking their lives every day. But the food, bev, and agribusiness industry, these are essential workers as well, right? And these agencies are recognizing that and they are working a lot longer hours than, than they were previously. I, I can tell you anecdotally, you know, we've reached out to the FDA on a handful of things for clients and the response times has been lightning fast. It has been, how can we help you? What challenges are you seeing? And once they address our challenges, it's, you know, what else are you hearing on the ground? What can we be looking at? What, how can we be more forward thinking? To answer your question more directly, Kermit, it's the business-to-business connections that these agencies weren't really used to doing. But being in the business of solutions rather than in the business of carrying out laws that Congress implemented. So, for example, we've talked a number of times before about issues within the dairy industry, particularly during COVID, around not being able to get product to supply chains, um, you know, to the to the end user quickly enough and product needing to be dumped because of supply chain chokeholds and distribution networks that were just not set up for a global pandemic. I mean, when you look at things like what USDA has done, you know, answered the call to start to address some of these issues with Congress, because look, you know, you need legislators to fix some of these issues as well. I've just been impressed with particularly USDA in helping out the agribusiness sector, which is particularly hard hit from COVID, you know, the, the coronavirus food assistance program that, um, that we wrote a, a blog post about a few months ago, seems like, again, 100 years ago, but talking about food banks and distribution networks and really cutting through some of that red tape. You know, look, I think these agencies could work 24-7, 365 days a year, and there would still be challenges, but 
I think what I've been impressed with is the business-minded, solutions-minded, let's figure out how to get food to the last mile. Let's figure out how to get financial relief directly to farmers who maybe haven't been able to sell their crops at anywhere near the price they were last year, getting direct relief to, to those stakeholders. Again, it's not perfect, and I'm not here to you know, just say that, that federal regulators are um, deserve all the praise in the world. There have been some misgivings, but I will say they've been more solutions and business-minded than I think we've seen in past years. Jonathan, while we're talking about regulation, um, you, you, you're, you'll be modest, but you're widely regarded as one of the leading thought leaders when it comes to regulation of CBD products and hemp. Uh, reading a lot lately about some activity that Congress is thinking about with regard to the regulation. Also reading about kind of some overproduction of hemp and kind of missing the mark and what was happening in the industry this last last year or two. And we have an election coming up. So I'm just kind of curious from your standpoint, not trying to make some news here, but what 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 are you trying what are you seeing uh, happening from the regulatory standpoint for CBD and hemp, and, and what can we expect uh, in the future? Because there seems to be a lot more demand than, there's, than there are channels for products, whether it be in food ingredients and in the food supply, and even kind of the, the medical side, which we'll leave for another podcast. But I, I'd love to get your thoughts for a couple of minutes. Sure. Yeah. One, one of my favorite topics to talk about, it's fantastically complicated, but a lot of fun also to work in the space. So just a quick history lesson for folks. So at the end of 2018, Congress passed what is shortly referred to as the Farm Bill. Congress passes the Farm Bill all the time, but there are two versions of the Farm Bill when it comes to hemp that you should know about, the 2014 version and the 2018 version. So at the end of 2018, Congress passed and the president signed into law the Farm Bill, which contained a provision that said that hemp or cannabis sativa L with a Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol or THC concentration of 0.3% or less is now federally legal. That is treated like any other agricultural commodity, corn, um, you know, soybeans, those sorts of things. So, you know, that bill was great, but there was a pesky little provision in there that said that nothing in this bill does anything to undercut FDA's authority when it comes to adding hemp derivatives to FDA-regulated products. Translation, when you add CBD to a food product, FDA still gets to say whether or not that's allowed. And unfortunately for many stakeholders, many of our clients, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has long said that when you add CBD or cannabidiol, which is a derivative from the hemp plant, from the cannabis sativa L plant to food, that is federally illegal. There's something called the drug exclusionary rule. CBD was studied as a drug ingredient before it was available as a food ingredient. Long story short, that's FDA's position. So all these folks got into the hemp space and they thought, oh, I'm going to have all these outlets to sell hemp because everyone's going to want to make CBD products and put it into foods and dietary supplements. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the left hand wasn't necessarily talking to the right hand and there just haven't been as many outlets for hemp and its derivatives as many had hoped for. So FDA has been getting a lot of pressure from the hemp industry, from the CBD industry to reverse course and to allow CBD and food products. But FDA has been saying, look, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has a drug exclusionary clause in there that says it's, it's essentially a race to market provision. If something was marketed, it was studied as a drug, approved as a drug before it was a food ingredient, it can't be a food ingredient unless FDA passes a regulation to the contrary. Well, you know, that's in their control, but FDA said we have some concerns about the safety related to CBD, how much people are consuming, what marketers are claiming about it. 
um, you know, that's, that's, the, let's, that's the stage. So we set it now. So Kermit, to your question, what's going on with CBD? So two things. One, FDA has over the summer made some you know, announcements about CBD. And most recently, they submitted to the White House Office of Management and Budget a cannabidiol enforcement policy. I, I will say that no one has seen it. By that, I mean it has not been leaked to anybody that I know about. Sometimes we are fortunate enough to get a heads up on some of these things from some of our reporter contacts. But my best sense is that the only agencies that have seen this so far are OMB and FDA. But we think that FDA might allow some sort of enforcement discretion period while the agency studies CBD further, figures out appropriate serving sizes, figure out what, you know, what claims can be made. So far, FDA has only gone after people that are making aggressive disease claims. So even though they say that CBD ingestibles are illegal, you're not in their current enforcement environment going to get a warning letter unless you say very aggressive things like, my CBD product treats cancer or diabetes or neuropathy, right? So they're leaving a big segment of the market wide open. So some are holding out hope that this enforcement policy currently pending at OMB will open the door a bit. There's also been some legislation introduced that would say by law that dietary supplements are allowed to contain CBD as long as they those supplement makers adhere with dietary supplement good manufacturing practice or GMP requirements. Unfortunately, I think any standalone legislative vehicles, given that we're in an election year, given that we're in the midst of COVID, unless something like that is tacked on to must-pass legislation like CARES Act 2.0 or some other COVID-related legislation or HEROES Act or something like that, I don't think it's likely in Congress this session. But perhaps there's some sort of bargain that's, that's figured out where members of Congress are saying, look, the hemp industry has been hit pretty hard by COVID because you know, retail is down and we need, we need a win here. So let's attach it to the COVID legislation. But we're hopeful that we'll hear something that OMB will review this, uh, this FDA enforcement policy and that it will be positive news for hemp growers, for processors, for finished product manufacturers. But yeah, unfortunately, there's kind of a lot that's left open right now, but at least we're hearing from FDA that they're willing to entertain opening up the markets. And the last thing I'll mention is FDA did, uh, did say at an, a dietary supplement industry conference a few weeks ago that they are willing to discuss with sponsors whether a, a new dietary ingredient notification is possible for a hemp extract that contains a non-standardized amount of CBD. That's a fancy way of saying FDA is willing to talk to stakeholders and to help stakeholders be creative to potentially get some things through the agency that contain CBD but aren't kind of prominently a CBD ingredient product, if that makes sense. Well, you've, you've fortified my suspicion that despite the fact that there is a substantial amount of intrigue and interest, and we're seeing it from private equity and strategics, that they still need a good lawyer. So, <laughs> so I, I would probably wrap up this podcast by saying that if you, you do have questions uh, about this area in particular, Jonathan is by far the person to contact, and obviously our contact information will be below on the podcast button on the screen. Um, and looking at our time, this, this is, this is uh, about the time we're allotted, Jonathan, so we're going to have to wrap it up here. I've got more questions that we'll pick up another time, but uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks for listening in. Thanks, Kermit. Thanks for listening.
listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry.